and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about the endings to games. All good games must come to an end, so we will be looking at the ways that storytellers conclude their tales. We'll also probably be spoiling several games along the way, like, did you know that in Horizon Zero Dawn, Rosebud was Aloy's sled? To help me discuss video game endings is a man who, in spite of being a humble plumber, always manages to rescue the princess from the overgrown turtle monster or something. A good friend, Jared Bruner. Jared, Mario has a weird story, if you, if you really think about it. That game is bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a good, good try to fit that in. I, get, yeah. I, mean, you, you, I mean, you summed it up for the most part, I think. That's about all the story that they've ever put in Mario, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of fucked up across all games. Like, it starts out in Odyssey with Bowser, like, kidnapping Peach to marry her. So, eh, questionable. Very, <laughs> very questionable. And this is uh, this is the first episode we're recording in the new year. Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year to you as well. And uh, what, what a way to start a new year by talking about endings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a great topic, and we have an amazing guest to talk about it with. He's the founder of Nuclear Fission. And the writer-director on the game Four Horsemen, please welcome Kevin Chen. Hey, everybody. Kevin, how you doing, man? I should have asked you before we started recording. Is that how you pronounce the name of your company, Nuclear Fission? Nuclear Fission Software, that's right. Perfect. All right, nailed nuclear. it. Nuclear. It's pronounced nuclear. Nuclear. Kevin, Sorry. welcome to the show. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing very well. And you are you are up bright and early. You're, you're joining us from uh, Taiwan right now. What are you doing out there? Uh, right now, just drinking some water, uh, trying to shake off the jet lag. The jet lag is actually helping right now because I'm sort of half still on New York time. Um, but yeah, it's bright and early. Everything's dark. Uh, Taipei is beautiful this time of morning. Um, sometime over the podcast, I will probably see the sun rise outside my window, which is going to be pretty excellent. Right on, man. I can I- think of worse ways to spend recording a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here in Arizona where it's like 80 degrees and my room is hot as shit, so I, I, I could kind of wish I was where you were. <laughs> well, New York is in the middle of a bomb cyclone right now, so uh, yeah, it's a, kind of a huge jump from there to a bomb yeah, cyclone. Sure. It's The weather's really mild here in Taipei, so uh, I mean, I'm just glad to not be in the middle of like freezing snow and hail and all of the other crap that's going on out there. Yeah, Isn't bomb cyclone the name of one of the Mini bosses in Mario Odyssey. <laughs> I was always thinking. I haven't finished it. It, it. it feels like the name of a like a, a high level like MMO like super attack. Yeah, I was. Well, I was gonna say. I was gonna say like Mega Man boss. That's what I instantly think of. Yeah. Don't stand in the bomb cyclone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, Kevin, for people who um, might not be familiar with you, where where did you get started in video games? How did you get into video game development? Ooh, good question. Uh. So I've been, I've been making video games professionally for about seven years now. Um, I mean, I got a degree in computer science and a degree in uh, creative writing at Oberlin College in 2007. Uh, pretty much ever since then, I've been like, I've, you know, I've worked in indie, I've worked in AAA, both. Uh, the New York scene for uh, games is kind of small, so I, I know a lot of people there now. Um, I mean, there was... It, I did everything the hard way. I'm not like your friend's uh, uncle at Nintendo, proverbially, from the 1980s that like everyone seemed to have. Um, 
I, I got my start uh, doing Nintendo DS homebrew games and bringing them to, uh, like, IGDA and, like, other, like, trade events in the city. Um, uninvited, mind you. Um, just going up to drunk game developers and being like, hey, look what I can do. And then... You're, like, one uh, of those guys that walks into the MoMA and just, like, puts up a frame on the wall and gets people to think it's <laughs> modern art. <laughs> kind of, Yeah. And, I mean, it, it sounds kind of crazy, but eventually that did actually land me some contract work. Um, there were folks who, like, had games they were working on the side, like, while they're doing uh, their, while they're doing their bread and butter professionally. Um, and I, I guess I got my break, like, doing those. So it was a lot of, like, really small kind of first flash and then, like, iPhone games. Um, and eventually this escalated up to where I was, like... Uh, I was one of the lead developers at Gameloft for a while, at Gameloft New York, before that office closed. Uh, Nuclear Fission is sort of just the latest thing I'm doing. Um, it's the first... Uh, it's the first team that I've led, like, on my own, at the sort of, like, top of the food chain, which has been really kind of scary, because that's a lot of responsibility, and, um, you know... A lot of managing, I would, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, I spend as much time, like, doing accounting and, like, marketing, and just making sure everyone's okay and no one's overworked, as, like actually like sitting down and coding so that's been a lot and also just like paying people and making sure that they can like pay their rent that's like something I take that usually helps yeah. keep people around yeah so so when did you start nuclear fission and like what prompted you to to start your own company well nuclear fission itself as a concept actually began with the very first game i ever made when i was 12 years old it was just some like branding i slapped on top because i was 12 and i wanted to feel important um, <laughs> But uh, as a company, it's existed since 2015. Um, I founded it basically to make this specific game, um, which is uh, Four Horsemen. It's a visual novel about the immigrant experience. And um, I, I made this game, or like I came up with the idea of this game in the sort of like existential haze of 2015, when it seems like, um, like you kind of see like dark clouds on the horizon politically uh the syrian civil war was going on the arab spring had like gone to pot um i was still like processing all the stuff that happened in the past few years like the uh, you know occupy kind of like not really going anywhere um and this is sort of like anxiety and like political disillusionment of seeing a lot of people being like hey actually you know maybe the nazis had a point or you know like Hey, maybe we should treat the like certain groups of people not like people. And I felt I, I felt like I really needed to do something. You know, I couldn't just like sit in my office and make silly video games and uh, be distanced from all that. So uh, I re sort of revived this like childhood company concept. I got some friends who were uh, in the underground like arts and music scene, uh, do the art and music, and it's just really like ragtag, like down the grassroots kind of project. Um, trying to make a, a sort of, like, principled stand against uh, all these sort of, like, dark forces that we've seen, like, gather uh, in American politics and internationally over the past couple of years. Do you have a personal connection to this type of story that you're telling in uh, Four Horsemen? Absolutely, and that actually connects to how I'm in Taiwan right now. Um, so I have a kind of an unusual history of people tend to get it backwards when I tell them. Um <laughs> So I was actually born in New Jersey, uh, and like I had a pretty normal American childhood. And then when I was twelve, I moved to Taiwan because uh, a whole bunch of economic and political things. Uh, my dad found a new job, and 
uh, just weird connections to the Exxon Valdez oil spill that actually had a lot of a lot to do with that. Um, so I ended up like in a Alice in Wonderland situation where suddenly I'm like ripped out of a very typical kind of American uh, elementary and middle school kind of experience. I mean, there's a weird world on the like other side of the planet. And um, it was a really kind of difficult experience kind of trying to adjust because I barely spoke any Chinese. <laughs> and um, people were kind of delusional about how quickly I would adapt. Uh, <laughs> and then after six years there, like, you know, I came back to America for college and um, and there was another kind of cultural shock because suddenly people are like, oh, hey, you know, you're that guy from abroad. Um, but wow, your English is really good. I'm like, yeah, of course it is my native language. <laughs> but, um, I was really struck by how a lot of parts of that experience, like the, the racist slurs people would shout at me on the subway, um, the way people would treat me when I was at the DMV, um, and just like this general weird sense of like, you know, I don't belong here. People don't treat me like I belong here. Um, it was the same both ways, just with the country switched. And I talked hmm. to a lot of other people who had emigrated early in their childhood, uh, some of them a little later. Um, and I got this sort of fascinating picture that there's these resonances in the experience, like no matter what country you're from and no matter what, what country you go to, it's like there's, there's these universal threads, these uh, motifs that kind of appear again and again. Um, and I was really fascinated by that. And I started talking to a lot of people, um, trying to get the at the core of what this experience is. This sort of like universal sociological reaction that people have to having someone from um, a, a distant, like foreign, unknown place move into your neighborhood and become part of your community. Um, so this game was kind of a way to, I guess, explain that to people who have never been through that before. Um, I was just struck by how universal it was. You know, I talked to, you know, Arab Americans. I talked to, uh, like, uh, all sorts of different kinds of Asians, like Indians, Pakistanis, uh, Koreans, and so on. I talked to uh, white people living in Japan, uh, which I was astonished at how similar some of their experiences were to mine um, and how they still went through a lot of this, this same kind of thing. Um, and it's this sort of idea of an archetypal story about not necessarily one place in particular, but uh, just the feeling of what it means in the abstract to be an immigrant and how this sort of like intersects with uh, coming of age and um, how people see themselves as a person and how these also sort of develop in all these uh, little like political and sociological problems that we see everywhere. Um, it just like, there's only so many times that you hear, you like hear the same story in real life before you kind of feel like, you know, if we only compare notes, maybe this wouldn't be like so terrible for everybody <laughs> now what made you want to make this uh, a video game instead of say a novel because because the video game sort of in, in many ways reads like a novel but the the player does have input so what was it about the the interactive uh, nature of video games that made you want to, to make it into a game well aside from the obvious that like when you have a hammer everything looks like a nail and i'm a video game developer um <laughs> Some of it is like, you know, as part of, as a smaller part of my research than actually talking to people, because I feel like people's personal experiences carry more weight than like an article in the, uh, in the Atlantic or whatever, or even like a book that somebody went somewhere, uh, wrote about. Um, I, so I, I did read like, uh, a, a whole bunch of like books and like, the kind of things that uh, 
people disparagingly call identity tourism because the whole point of reading them is like, you know, oh, I want to know what it's like to be like 16 in Iraq, or I want to know what it's like to be a, a, a child soldier in Africa. And these are really fascinating, but I felt like they were also really very shaped narratives. It, I got a sense talking to a lot of people talking about um, their experiences consuming media about uh, cultures not their own. And every culture not your own, if you've never been to a place, feels a little bit like reading Lord of the Rings. It's a bit of a fantasy story. Um, and part of this is because you don't really have any agency in the story. You're just sort of like dragged along for the ride while people make culturally inscrutable decisions. Um, and I kind of wanted to get away from that a little because it is so easy to sort of like group uh, any group of foreign pe people foreign to wherever you're from, uh, no matter where you're from, uh, as in like, you know, oh, they're a little bit alien. They think a little differently. They don't make the same decisions as us. Their, their culture is uh, foreign and bizarre, and they're a little bit less than human that way. And I feel like putting people in the middle of this sort of this, uh, situation where it's the sort of making excuses for like why you should be, why you should sort of like control or judge other people's behavior and just be sort of like, well, what would you, what would you do in this situation? What would you do in these circumstances? Um, it would help people kind of better understand why immigrants make certain decisions that they do. Like a good example is uh, uh, the, all the talk about like chain migration that you hear from the Trump administration right now. Like you'll see, you'll see echoes of this in immigration policy all over the world. This is like rhetoric everywhere. It's like, oh yeah, it's not just, you know, one or two people coming into the country. They're all bringing their, you know, you bring in one person and they bring their aunts and uncles and they bring their children and suddenly you have like 500 people and they have a like little community in your city. Um, so people don't generally think about why that happens. People don't think about why uh, traditionally a lot of cultures, astonishingly, uh, the men usually come first to sort of like see if it's safe and they're like jobs um, and they can find a home or whatever, bringing their families over. Um, it's so easy to look at from the outside and just be like, you know, oh, if you give a mouse a cookie, he'll bring like a billion other mice. Another to think <laughs> of the dynamics of a... I don't remember like, reading that book when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I have been hearing a lot of that kind of rhetoric and it's just like yeah. there's a... I don't think people are actively being sociopathic when they're thinking about it, but they're just like for a moment they're thinking of people as like a statistic and they're not thinking like, wait, you know, I'm not going to come across this border like, you know, without my mom who might be sick or like my... Uh, my kids, if I have kids. Um, the whole purpose of going to another country for a lot of people is sort of to move their family elsewhere you know, for more opportunity or, or safety from political persecution or any of a billion other things. So mm -hmm. it makes, like, there almost isn't any reason for someone to emigrate alone. Um, and uh, I think people tend to forget these little human details. And if you, I feel like if I drop people in these situations, not so much like set up context and be like, okay, like, let's say you're, uh, in this particular context, it just sort of like comes naturally. Like people make choices in their like everyday lives, and suddenly they're in this very familiar situation. Then they can go look at the analogous situation in real life and be like, "Oh, I understand why people do that now." Um, and I feel like that has so much more power. Like when you do it as a player, when you have to choose between like uh, sometimes between things that like you know might require giving up a little bit of your cultural identity to fit in better or um, Things like, you know, oh, why can't you just, like, speak... If you can speak your uh, new language all the time, you know, why don't you speak your new language all the time? Um, little things. Little things that people talk about endlessly but don't really think about, like, how do people get in those situations in the first place? 
I want to sort of like organically grow that out to the point where somebody can look back at all of her decisions over a playthrough and be like, you know, oh, I, I see how that happened. You know, I see how I ended up making all the same choices as like my, my new neighbors across the street who might have just like come here from Syria or whatever. Now, I, I, when I was um, trying to find a guest, I originally found you because of a talk you had given on representation in games. And without, without even knowing that you had made this game Four Horsemen, and then when I saw Four Horsemen, I was like, oh, you know, his, his talks about representation and diversity in games, it makes sense because I can see that in your work. But I was just curious, like, what process you go through to make sure that there's authentic representation in the game Four Horsemen? Things that maybe you don't think about when you think about representation or, or things that I, I guess people like me wouldn't think about when we think about representation in games. Of course. Uh, so a lot of people, there's, uh, I've touched upon this in talks on diversity in the past because this is something that doesn't really get brought up a lot, but um, the vast majority of video games, uh, AAA or otherwise, in fact, are made in a, a handful of countries for a variety of political and economic reasons. I mean, you'll find outliers, and some of them are really, really remarkable. But for the most part, when people think about diversity, they're really thinking about, hey, this game is going to release for an international market, so uh, what does the world look like? The world looks like, generally, the most diverse city in my home country. So, um, for example, if you are aiming for diversity and your studio is in San Francisco, you're going to get, like, maybe some Chinese people, uh, maybe some... Uh, you know, some white folks, some black folks, the diversity is going to look like the diversity in your country, or not even your country, but like in your state, or what you're personally familiar with. And one thing I've learned just like living in different places around the world is that diversity actually looks really different um, in a lot of different places, because there are more kinds of people than you can imagine. Like I live in New York City, which is one of the most diverse cities in the world, and um, you will find groups of people in like Sao Paulo, or like in, uh, in Paris, that you will never see in New York, just because like the history and the politics that like bring people to uh, to these countries is, is really different. Um, and I, I found that there's a huge segment of players who never get represented because of this, who play a lot of games, who buy a lot of games, and nobody makes games in their countries. And so they're just like, they never really get to identify with someone on screen. And uh, because identification is such a big part of this game, I was like, I could do this so badly. <laughs> And people who have not played the game, they hear about the concept and they think it's exactly this, and I'm kind of hurt by it. But um, I could have just like gone on like, just like listened to a whole bunch of like NPR podcasts and read a bunch of like New York Times bestseller books and just been like, okay, now I have an idea of what it means to be African. Now I have an idea of what it means to be like growing up in the like Van Lewis in Paris or whatever. It's so easy to sort of give yourself this false sense of expertise when these very carefully crafted, almost fictional narratives. And I think the only way to really make things true to people's actual lived experience so that like players from that culture will sit down and play and be like, oh my god, I recognize this like as myself. This is totally me. Um, is to like talk to actual people who have actually been there. And um fortunately for me, like, you know, on one hand I live in New York and like I have access to not like the whole breadth of diversity like I've mentioned before, but a wide swath of it. And I have connections in Taiwan with the like international expat community here. Um, so, um, how do you know what it's like to be a teenager in uh, like an Arab teenager in Israel? You talk to someone who is an Arab teenager in Israel. How do you learn how to swear in Sinti Romani? You talk to someone who's Romani. Um, 
And I've just been incredibly privileged to know people from like all these different cultures uh, that I've that I've represented in the game. Not all of them, but like enough of them to sort of like get a picture of like to sort of bolster that with my more mundane cultural research. You know, like going on uh, linguistic like databases and looking what like slang was like in a certain period, um, and uh, reading people's blogs. <laughs> Uh, running them through Google Translate, going on, like, Facebook, uh, finding, like, restaurant reviews in Aleppo and stuff and seeing, like, what people enjoy eating and, like, what they're doing in the photos that people take there. Uh, all of it, like, I, tr I try to stick to as much uh, primary source stuff as as possible. I think that's really unique. Um, it, it did take a lot of extra effort, though. There's a lot of th times I wish I could just sit down and read a book. It's funny you brought it up because there was a bullet point for... Uh your pitch of four horsemen that says you can learn how to swear in different languages. Why, why is, why is like swearing an important part of, of language? Cause I, you know, you've brought it up here. I saw it on the website. Like, is there something about the, uh, you know, the way that people curse in different languages that's important to language? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, because four horsemen isn't just a game about integration. It's a game about teenagers. Um, I, I've noticed this in a lot of like art and stuff. Like, um, when you, when you see, like, documentaries, uh, or, like, even, like, fictionalized, like, life stories of people in foreign countries, like, uh, the coming-of-age story seems to be the most, like, popular genre, I think that's because it grounds all this, like, other, what would otherwise seem very exotic, all this foreignness, and this very familiar, universal kind of human experience. Um, so, I feel like for something like this to resonate with people, it has to be both uh, convincingly, like, adolescent, as well as convincingly, like, immigrant. Um, so, the thing about swearing is, uh, teenagers only swear in a position of absolute honesty, because they're conditioned to, like, by nature, but, well, by definition, swearing is, like, what is forbidden to say in front of adults. So, swear, so, when teenagers swear around each other, you get an idea of, you know, where their values are, what the taboos of their culture are, and how they sort of bring those into uh, cultures that might not have the same taboos, might have, not have the same cultural values. Uh, it was actually really fascinating doing research for this. I found that, like, uh, more, like, societies that are, tend to be more close-knit, uh, well, which tend to integrate fa uh, politics and family more, tend to have more of a, like, so swears about people's mothers tend to be more common, <laughs> whereas, uh, Things that are like places that are a little more individualistic tend to there's a lot more like profanity about people's like genitals, hmm. um, and it's sort of like hilarious to see how that reads differently when you like play the same character, even the same like storyline with different like sets of swear words, um, and and get this sort of idea of what is sacred to uh, to particular cultures and how they sort of like just casually say like you know. Um, oh, if you say that again, I'm going to cut your balls off, or whatever, as opposed to, like, uh, like may your, uh, may your grandchildren be, like, cursed for a thousand generations. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also hilarious, as you can tell. I had a lot of fun, like, learning about all of that. And uh, I went as close to this source material as I could, because obviously, uh, lists that adults, like, make of swear words, um, half the time they're trolling, like, all the resources on, on uh, swearing in Irish are all, like, taking the piss. Like, none of them are serious. Uh, they just make, make up tons of words. 
But when you like get a friend drunk and you you ask them like, uh, so how did you swear at your friends when you were sixteen? Like they will. This is something that everyone really enjoys talking about. Well, we we encourage swearing on this podcast. So if you if you want to work in as, <laughs> as as much swearing as possible, please feel free. And in, in, we we earn that little red E on iTunes. Yeah. <laughs> we earn yeah. it the hard way. And if you want to if you want to start uh, appealing to our international audiences with with uh, any of the swears you've picked up in your research, please feel free. <laughs> I can share my absolute favorite. Um, so, uh, one of the c- cultures that's represented in the game is sort of a. Uh, a pastiche of the Sinte Romani, who are a Romani group in uh, from, I think right now they're primarily in France and Italy, and they're decimated after the the Holocaust. So there's like less than a million uh, Sinte speakers left in the world, and they're they're an endangered, like um, heavily persecuted group, and it's really sad. So obviously their uh, profanity has become very very colorful, <laughs> and. Um, I, I am very fortunate to know my friend, uh, like, uh, my friend Faye, uh, she's part Romani, and uh, so she knows a lot of this stuff that you're not going to find in any sort of anthropological database where people are more concerned about words for, like, bread and words for family. (laughs) Um, So my favorite swear that she taught me was, uh, it translates roughly to, um, um, I shit on your toothbrush. And nice. it's, <laughs> it's great as a general purpose thing. And it, it's fantastic because the Romani like deeply value cleanliness as a nomadic <laughs> people. So to say that you're going to do someone to this is like an amazing troll. It's like you spent all day cleaning all of your shit so that when you move to the next town, you're not going to get a disease. And then I shit under a toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful. Great. Yeah, that's great. It's it's poetry. It's true poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's a decision that you get to make in Four Horsemen. Yeah, I haven't played it yet. Whether or not but I'm going to be on looking someone's for toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin, so I I uh, asked you if there was something in game design that you felt could or should be reevaluated, and you pitched us the the topic of video game endings. Why why did you pick this as what you wanted to discuss? Because for so many designers I've talked to, it's a dead topic. And I really feel frustrated by the conventional wisdom around it. So the conventional wisdom around endings, which a lot of people take as gospel, is that um, they're not necessary or they're not important. That the real friends you made were the friends you made along the way, you know. Um, And this line of thinking comes from, um, I think, an older era in video games. Like, you think about, like, does Asteroids need an ending? Does Tetris need an ending? Like, it's, it's kind of silly, right? If you don't really think of games as a narrative medium, which a lot of games aren't, I will admit. Um, you know, what really is the plot of Tetris anyway, um, then, yeah, it's not quite so necessary. Um, and also, like, just from market data, like, most people can tell, uh, most developers will tell you, the vast majority of players of any particular game will never get to the ending, so it feels like a waste of time and resources to invest uh, in something grand. Um, and I feel that. I feel that, like, for a lot of games, that's definitely true. But you look at people's stories of how disappointed they were in the endings of games that they otherwise loved. Like, uh, Mario 64 is actually a great example. Um, a lot of people found the ending of that game incredibly underwhelming. It's like, you know, what? I traveled, like, basically around the world in this, like, huge painting castle, and I unlocked, like, 151 stars, and all I get is a cake. It just, like... It feels almost like... No, literally, what happened there is Nintendo was like, oh, we were expecting you are going to show up at this party. Well, like, here... <laughs> Uh, have some leftovers. 
And well, if you're, hear- if you're into speed running, the the end of that game is a nail biter. That's where that's where speed runs are are made or broken. Oh yeah, I wanted to get into that a, a little as well. Uh, the definition of what an ending is, like uh, I think it's important to make a distinction between the narrative end of a game, as in like the end of a game story if it has one, and the point at what a play which a player feels satisfied and stops playing, uh, which is very different. Well, and, and I guess their third definition is just sort of like. At what point has a player achieved sufficient mastery to the game that they feel like they're, at least for the time being, there's no need to improve? And I feel like for a lot of games, uh, these three are actually completely different. Like your uh, speedrunning in Mario 64 is a great example. Um, if you're speedrunning at an individual level, like your, your, your goal isn't the cake after you like beat Bowser, because beating Bowser isn't the point. The, the point is that you beat that level faster than anyone else who has ever done it before. So the ending for that, I guess, would be like sitting on your Twitch stream and then being like, oh my god, I did it! Like, oh, while like, all of your fans like, uh, were watching you just kind of like stare at you with disbelief. And, and that, that, it's a temporary thing, you know, that only lasts as long as someone else comes and breaks your record. And this is closer to, like, if you think about, you know, Asteroids and uh, um, games from the 70s, where the only ending in a video game besides a game over screen, which is always underwhelming by definition, is getting a high score. And um, seeing your name on the leaderboard, and um, I mean that's as much an ending as anything. But it's like not—it's not the same what we mean as like reaching, beating the final boss in like say a Final Fantasy. That's a, and that's actually a good place for us to jump into, I guess, the origins of endings in video games. Um, so if we go all the way back to 1976, uh, there was a game that came out called Colossal Cave Adventure. This was designed by Will Crowther and Don Woods. It was made for the PDP-10 mainframe computer. And this was a text-based adventure game in which the player, uh, I think, starts in a forest and enters a cave, and the goal is to acquire as much treasure as possible. And it's all done through text inputs and outputs, so it'll just the screen will just tell you, like, you're standing at the mouth of a cave. What do you want to do? And you type in, enter cave, and then it would tell you, you know, then it would say, like, okay, you've entered a cave. It's dark in here. That's kind of how the... The gameplay for this went, but the reason I'm bringing it up for this discussion, as far as like having a definable ending, is because a lot of people consider this the first true work of interactive fiction. Like, there's actually a story going on beyond the. I mean, you know, what's what's the story to Tic Tac Toe? We've talked about Birdie the Brain on here a couple of times before, and that's just, you know, that's just a game of Tic Tac Toe. And, of course, there's an end to a game of tic-tac-toe, but I think when we talk about video game endings, the thing that jumps to people's mind first and foremost is probably the narrative ending to a game. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Sure. So in um in Colossal... Yeah, credits, credits roll. Yeah, exactly. That type of thing. So in Colossal Cave Adventure, it was... There was no, like, necess- like it wasn't necessarily an ending to the game. A oh, wait, wait, hold on, end. sorry. Spoilers for anyone who hasn't oh, beaten yeah. Colossal Cave <laughs> Adventure from 1976. Uh, take your headphones off now and come yeah. back in yeah. about 30 seconds, and you should be good. Okay. It's really hard it's to find the copy, so I, I don't. Th- <laughs> if anyone can find the game to play it, like you know, congratulations. Um, well, I think in the 90s they had uh, released like the source code for this game, so I think it's it's floating around there somewhere. Uh, but basically, it all to finish the game, quote unquote, beat the game. You went into the cave, picked up all the treasure, and then left. And you would finish the game with the highest possible score of 350 points. Now, does does that count as an ending? Do we 
do we consider that like an end to a video game? Um, sure. I mean, by its own standards, I would have to imagine that that's that would be the end of what that game was designed to accomplish. I think that's I think that's probably a sort of a good beginning to a framework for this discussion of endings of video games. There's so many different kinds of video games. Like video game is such a big term that I think it is it is looking at a game on its on its like on its platform and saying like what does this game consider the end, quote unquote. Adventure fall um it is still early enough that it falls into that category of um, the ending is the high score. <laughs> so, um, I mean, yeah, it is a narrative end in that, like, the sequence of objects that you acquire in the game imposes a narrative that, like, uh, you, or at least the very, the rudiments of a plot, like, you play through and you're like, oh, I, you know, I picked up this object and I think, oh, I picked up this treasure, I picked up this treasure, and now I have all of them. Um, I forget if anything actually happens at the end or whether it's just sort of, like, oh, this number is bigger than it normally would be. Uh, but I think it's like a hard... It's it's really hard to pin down exactly where the distinction between that and, like, um, say, the ending of The Legend of Zelda would be. Because it's like, well, how do you differentiate that from, like, you die in Space Invaders, and then there's, like, a game over screen. Um, because if you beat Space Invaders, you get the same game over screen. And so it's like, it's the same code. And there's still this idea of like, well, there's a narrative, you know, you went to fight bad guys and you lost. <laughs> so that's technically an ending. But I don't know. It's like... Well, I mean, of, I think the yeah. difference is that Zelda presents you, like, it tells you what it is up front. You know, it's like, here is the the big bad. Go on your journey to, to f- defeat him. So by the game's own rules, which it introduces in like the first five minutes, like you would hope that there's a, a narrative ending that ties that all up. Okay, I think, so I-, I think this gets into some of that complicated area. We brought up an article on here a long time ago. It was written by Ian Bogost. I, I'm trying to do this from memory, so please forgive me if I get it wrong. But I think he said, I think the title was Video Games Are Better Without Stories, if I'm remembering correctly. And, oh, yeah. I think oh, yeah, I remember that. that. Right. And, and it's been a while since I've read it. So, again, I apologize if I'm, if I'm getting this wrong. But I, I believe the suggestion in that article was that this idea of like a narrative, this um, sort of film-based or literature-based narrative in video games is not very effective versus the storytelling of, you know, player choice and the, the gameplay of the game itself being the one that tells the story. And I so, think that that's what makes this discussion of like, what is the end of a game a little bit murky? Uh, so I've been following Ian Bogos work for a long time. He's one of my... Uh, personal heroes, at, at least in terms of like critical thinking about games. Um, he's drawing upon, uh, he's written about this a lot before. He's drawn upon the work of, of well, the legacy of uh, Janet Murray, who used to be a professor of education at MIT, uh, was co- credited for uh, coining the term immersion. Um, Janet Murray had this book that she published, I think in 1994, 1995, I might be getting the wrong, but sometime around then. Where uh, basically she saw it, what's well, called Hamlet on the holodeck, and basically she saw an episode of I think it was uh, Star Trek Voyager, uh, where the um, they were using the holodeck to uh, create this like interactive, like you know, children playing, You're just like making up everything, like a plot character setting as you go along, kind of fantasy. Um, and she was looking at that and looking at video games and realizing we had the, te- the technology to make that and being really frustrated that that didn't exist. 
And that set off a good 20 years of uh, experimentation with video games as narrative, which intersected with an earlier movement of uh, where people are trying to explore video games as literature. Um, and all of this ended in 1999 when uh, a bunch of scholars, one of them, um, I think his name was Aaron Elspeth, the other one was like Gonzalo Frasca. They wrote a bunch of papers, like basically like doing what never happens in academia, which is like somebody takes an idea and completely crushes it and like destroys the dreams of everyone who's invested, <laughs> invested in it. Um, they had a really thorough study of like, you know, okay, you're defining what is a game going all the way back to the days of like the ancient Greeks, <laughs> like how we understand what a game is and its relationship to the performance. And uh, like Frasca wrote a paper in 1999, uh, uh, I think it's called something like Games and Ludo Narratology, uh, Ludo Narrative, and he's talking about, um, so he comes to the conclusion that you, it is so easy to find games that you can impose a narrative on, but which aren't inherently narrative, that the whole idea of thinking of games as narrative is, like, doomed. Like, if you if you try to write a game like a book, you'll run into problems, um, because it doesn't work the same way, because a player has uh, agency, and they can control the story, and it doesn't, like... Like, it's, it's really constraining in a way that doesn't have to be, and he sort of argued that if you don't think of it that way, you think of games as games, like, closer to, like, soccer or baseball... Um, and that gives you a lot of freedom, more freedom to, to sort of explore the medium as games. And this was very controversial at the time, but it did kind of succeed in killing the idea of games as narrative dead. Uh, it's not completely gone because every now and then somebody, uh, this has happened to me about three times now, somebody will meet like an undergrad at some like college in the middle of nowhere where their books on like video game theory only go up to 1995 and they'll discover a copy of Hamlet on the Holodeck and they'll be really excited <laughs> And then, like, um, <laughs> like a Sith Lord, like a game designer, will have to visit them and like crush their dreams. <laughs> so, um, I mean, like, granted, it's absurd now after like decades of experimentation to say that games can't tell great stories. We have so many examples of games that have and have done things in ways that only video games can. Um, but uh, Bogas' work, like, a lot of it originates with. Uh, news games, this whole idea of um, playing games that help you explore the news. Uh, you can kind of see how he's a big inspiration on me. And um, he kind of argued that by sticking to a sort of like novel-like or play-like format, this is really limiting like what you could do with this sort of genre. And uh, Professor Bogas has moved on to some other stuff since, but I think he's still like very sort of tied to this framework, this idea that if you think of games as just stories, then there's so many, ironically, there's so many stories you can't tell with them. Um, and also just following his Twitter account after he posted that, he's just sort of like, how many people like don't know that I'm always trolling when I like post things like this? <laughs> <laughs> and it was certainly like the title of his article certainly seemed like hyperbole, um, but, you know, raised a lot of controversy at the time. And I don't think he suggests that video games are, you know, should not have a story, but I just think he was, the suggestion was that video games are at their best when they're not trying to incorporate those traditional ideas of, of narrative into the game. When they're, when the gameplay itself is revealing the story to the player or the player is creating the narrative through their interaction with the game. Yeah. And I think that we sort of are getting away from this right now, but for a long time, video games were trying to be like movies and telling the same story in a way that a movie would tell a story. 
And sometimes that, you know, that would lead to things like, even though this is my favorite series ever, Metal Gear Solid 4 had like 45 minute cutscenes where you weren't interacting with anything. And then, you know, eventually that led to quick time events in every game. And it's like, this, this is very, this is barely interactive. And I've, barely, I've just been watching things happen on screen. Like, why does this story even need to be in a video game? Like, why not? I just watch this like as its own thing. So I think that a few topics that I'm going to hit on in, throughout this episode is stories that only a video game can tell. It's fascinating to bring Metal Gear Solid um, because Hideo Kojima is amazing as somebody who initially never wanted to make video games. Like, you can tell his dream has always, and he said this in interviews too, but uh, his dream was always to be a movie director, and video games are just sort of like a well, okay, you know, if I can't make movies, this is the next best thing. It's kind of like Nobuo Uematsu wanting to be a, uh, uh, he wanted to write, like, classical music and, like, the right opera, and not having op- an opportunity to do that. He's like, well, you know, I'll see what I can do with video games. And these these guys are legendary because they push the boundaries of, of like, what's possible in video games so far. But it's, it's funny that, like, they're, they're tied to these constraints because... Um, the constraints of these other media are what they wanted to do all along. And I think that uh, we have this pattern in video games where that happens, where you have a more established medium that somebody really wants to do, and they settle for video games, and they ironically end up pushing the boundaries. But then people like draw the boundaries there. They're like, oh, video games are like film, or oh, video game music is like opera. When, no, that's an accident. <laughs> I mean, that was my original draw to Metal Gear Solid, uh, for PlayStation 1, I was like, holy crap, this looks just like a movie. And I love that game. I still do. I, I'll go back to it once every couple of years. But um, as games tried to do that more and more, I was like, this is this is not fun as a video game. <laughs> it's on some things. So um, I think we're starting to see stuff like, uh, I think one of my all-time favorite endings was Red Dead Redemption. Um, but even that, it wasn't super different from a video game. Um, I'm currently playing through Near Automata, and uh, that's doing some really interesting things with endings. You're so you're dropping a lot of baggage that we need to unpack. <laughs> I, I know. I know. I just, like, I'm, I'm, really just, I'm just gonna rattle I'm, off. I'm really excited games. to I'm just talk gonna about rattle those off two all things. these games that uh, have very interesting endings, but we're not gonna talk about any of them. We're just gonna blow through them all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, those are, those are, and I think those are great examples of games. But I think, like as an industry, like people saw what was happening. Like maybe we shouldn't try to make this a straightforward narrative. Maybe we should be trying to make tell stories that video games are good at telling stories. Yeah, exactly. I think that those are good examples of the the types of endings to games, the endings to stories that you can't necessarily do through other mediums. Um, I don't. I, and people will probably know this about me, uh, having listened to this show. I don't think that those are like perfect examples of sort of what my ideal video game is, a game that's never been made yet, but I'm I still uh, hope for we something. Talk a lot about this hypothetical game. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's a good thing I'm not in game development because this game would never actually get made. It would just be me like dreaming for eight hours a day, then clocking out and going home. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm interested in the, since we're talking a lot about narrative, why is it, why do games have to have an end? Why do they even need to have an ending? Like where, where did that idea come from? Uh, do you guys know? Cause I think for me, it's like, if you're enjoying a game, why, 
why should that game come to an end if, if you're enjoying the experience of playing it? Well, I mean, chess chess is a game and that has an ending. I mean, the ending is you defeat your opponent, you know, and I think uh, there's an objective laid out at the beginning of every game. And if you want to complete that objective, then naturally all things must end, right? Like all, all games must have some kind of end state. Oh, I mean, like Tetris, I guess, doesn't. Uh, full disclosure, I spent, I wasted about a year of my life trying to, like, fix this whole little narrative problem by um, trying to find a narrative in chess. And I don't think I was really successful. Um, but chess is also a metaphor. That didn't stop them from making a battleship movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? You know, this is... This is why people don't take that viewpoint seriously. <laughs> but um, if you think about chess and how the even though you're strategically making moves in a very abstract space, as in like, oh, the pawn moves this way, the knight moves this way, and the the narrative that you're moving towards um, is like the, the rise and fall of a kingdom, right? It's like there's mm -hmm. a king who's eventually surrounded by his own troops or by an invading army, and um, and like, it, the game is structured so that the fall is climactic. It's not like uh, some other games like Chinese chess, where if somebody doesn't see that they're in check, you just capture the king and the game is over. It's like, no, the fact that you have to checkmate someone shows that, you know, there, there is a first, a second, and a third act in chess, as, like, many chess uh, commentators have noticed. And if you think about how all of the pieces are clear metaphors for individual roles in a story and different characters, like the pawn is a character, the queen is a character... Um, like that's really fascinating how emergently a narrative develops around the game, even though the players aren't thinking about it at all. Um, but going to, if you take it further and just sort of like, well, is there an ending? Um, is there more than one narrative? Does the narrative matter? Then you end up in some really hairy territory. And I mean, I think sometimes this applies to video games as well, but the, the game is the story. I'm sure there are, you know, people who play chess regularly who can think back to a game and, and tell the story of like, you know, to their, their fellow chess nerds, they would be like, oh, this one time, you know, I was set up in this in this formation and this happened. And like, that's their story for that game. Yeah, there's a, a chess grifter in uh, Union Square. I think I've actually played him once or twice. So there's a great article about him, I think, in the New York Times, uh, where he's secretly also a fortune teller, as in um, he doesn't just sort of like troll people in chess games for money. He also looks at how people play and gets a picture of what kind of people they are. So uh, there's a lot of really fascinating pull quotes from the article, uh, but one of them was something like, um, you can tell when somebody has, uh, like whenever he plays like bankers or like people who are just like dressed in suits and you know, look like they have a lot of money, they're really scared to give up their pawns because their possessions mean a lot to them. Um, whereas you'll see someone who has nothing to lose, like someone who's clearly unemployed, and they'll just throw away pawns left and right. But they'll value their queen because they, for them, there's like one thing that's really important, and that's what keeps them like go, getting up and going to work or whatever for every day. And everything else can get fucked, but that queen is gonna like, by God, it's gonna be there at the end of the table because that's all he's got. So I mean, all of this is obviously reading into the game; it's not in the game itself. But I think it's fascinating how the layout and the structure of the game invites that kind of interpretation. Yeah, that's actually like a really beautiful way of looking at that. But when we're talking about games like chess, that's like a a competitive game, and I guess the ultimate goal of chess is like is domination. So once domination is achieved, that's like a clear end point for that game. I'm curious why in video games where we have the potential to have 
persistence where it, it seems plausible to have a game with no ending. Why there's still so many games that have quote unquote, like narrative arcs and endings. Like why, why is it, you know, if I'm playing red dead redemption and I'm enjoying my time with that game and I finish that game and I see the credits roll. Cause I saw the real ending to the game. Um, <laughs> why, why would I want that to be the end of that experience? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, I feel like a lot of times the game and the narrative can be at odds. And I'll, I'll throw out another example, too, of where these things might be at odds as well. I, I recently, uh, this past year, finished the 2016 Doom because I'm always behind on my oh, yeah. video game playing. But that's a game That's a game that I felt went on for probably about like two stages too long. Mm. But I stuck with it to see the quote-unquote end of that game. And I, you know, so, so I, I sort of am bringing up two examples here. One is I felt compelled to continue playing a game. I was sort of no longer enjoying to see the end of it. And then one like Red Dead Redemption, where I was enjoying the game, but then had the narrative tell me, okay, this is where you go away now. So one thing that Professor Murray got very, very right in her book. And um, one of the reasons why I feel bad when people dismiss Hamlet on the holodeck as a relic, because uh, she was spot on about this. The core of a uh, of games, as we experience them, the thing that makes them different from other medium on a defining level, um, and not like you know books or level or books or movies or or what have you. Um, in games, you have agency. In games, you control what happens, and this is the not only uh, a like idiosyncratic feature of games. This is like. The, the defining point. This is like what makes a game a game, and I think even uh, even Murray's critics has sort of, have sort of like they've agreed with this. Um, what makes a game a game while you're playing is the decisions that you make along the way. Uh, even if those decisions are very skill based, like did you click this button in time, or did you click the right button in time, or did you see that guy like that sniper on the roof or whatever. If we think of games in that framework and not in a sort of traditional narrative way, where like we think more in terms of like character development or uh, like the overall like arc of you know how themes fit together or whatever. Like, I mean, you can think about the game in that way too. But ultimately what the player is thinking about when they're playing, if they're not so totally immersed that they like kind of forget that it's not real and that they're, you know, struggling with the same thing that the character is struggling. It's more things like, you know, how do I jump over this next pit? How do I get to the end of this level? And so all of that is really based on like guiding their choices and thinking about where your choices are going to leave. Now, endings naturally arise out of this because if your choices are completely insignificant, then the choices, you know, what does it matter what choices you make? Uh, a good example of this, because this is a game that very, very much, like, went whole tooth into the whole, like, games as narrative thing, is Heavy Rain. Um, there's a sequence mm -hmm. near the beginning of Heavy Rain where you wipe your hands on a towel and you rotate the analog sticks to wipe your hands. And that's kind of cool. It's really immersive. You know, it's like you're... You kind of see the analogy between that input motion and, you know, actually have to clean your hands after you wash your hands. But there's really no, there's no forward movement. There's like your agency doesn't do anything in you deciding to clean your hands. And in fact, you don't really have a choice. I think like actually you can't leave. You can't leave the bathroom until you wipe your hands, um, <laughs> which is very polite, but also what bizarre. Am I, work? And also not very <laughs> game-like, you know, it's like, Typically, how people go through a game is just sort of like, oh, well, you know, maybe I go downstairs and then, like, 
my my son complains that like my hands are dirty so i can't like you know, do whatever so how do i solve this problem i go and wipe my hands like that's a more game-like way of dealing with it um but if it doesn't matter or worse if it's optional so that you know it doesn't matter if you wipe your hands or not like that might be a, a, ni a nice little detail but it's not something that really engages players with how they think about the game as a game and so endings are a way to sort of add consequences because when you have choices you have consequences right like one of my favorite endings of all time actually is from um uh super nintendo uh legend of zelda a link to the past and it's amazing because you wouldn't normally think of this as narrative there's not an awful lot of text there's this beautiful like orchestral soundtrack but they actually went through the the trouble to like sort of during the credits roll that you like visit every single npc in the game who is significant and you see how your actions have changed their lives. And that's amazing because, like, there's all these little, like, sub-quests and, you know, fetch quests and things where they're like, oh, go fetch me this, like, item. And you bring it back. They're like, yay, they're happy. But nothing about their life in this world or nothing about their presence has, like, really changed until this moment at the end when suddenly you get to look back at sort of, like, the sum of all of your decisions. And it's like they matter. It's like... Not only did you, like, defeat Ganon and restore the Triforce or whatever, but you also made, like, a thousand, like, small differences in all these all random NPCs' lives. And that gives the world this sort of illusion of persistence, that it's, like, that you went and helped some real people and you did something that really made a difference, as opposed to, like, the game ceases to exist when you shut it off, which is what actually happens. And I think that illusion of there being an enduring world which you leave a lasting mark um, is a very, very strong incentive to invest in the ending, which gets lost, like, in a lot of games that, that don't provide any ending whatsoever. Like, you mentioned Doom 2016. Um, one of my favorite uh, games of all time, actually, is uh, Doom 1993. I also love Doom 2016, but Doom 1993 is a special place in my heart. Um, but that ending is, like, seriously totally underwhelming, because they did the same thing as Super Mario Bros. 1, where you just see, like, um, like, you see the entire cast. It was basically every, like, shootable NPC, and you see their death animation, and it plays on loop. I'm like, you know, I literally just <laughs> went into hell through 32 levels, and um, I shot, like, John Romero's severed head on a stick <laughs> surrounded by, like, every monster in the game um, to, like, save Earth or whatever the narrative was. Um, and and this is, this is the anticlimax. It really doesn't... Like, at that point, everything I've done up to that point doesn't feel like it, it meant anything. And I think an ending kind of alleviates that feeling, like, a lot. That people impose this sort of narrative. They feel like they... There needs to be some kind of reward for that, all that effort. Or the illusion of a reward, even if the real reward was all the friends they made along the way. But then, Kevin, you also said it was to save Earth or whatever. Suggesting that... <laughs> <laughs> well, no... And, and I, I hope... I'm, you have to read the manual to get that <laughs> context. I... It's just interesting to me because in a game where obviously the narrative was didn't seem super important to you to begin with, uh, saving Earth or whatever, uh, the ending still managed to feel underwhelming. I'm curious if you have any insight into potentially why that was for you in that specific example. Like, what ending would do you think if it had a more substantial ending, you would have remembered the entirety of the narrative of that game a little better? Well, yes, uh, and a good counterexample of that is a game that came very came out very soon after, which was Duke Nukem 3D. Duke Nukem 3D had a very simple ending. Um, basically, there's, like, the final boss uh, is in, like, a football stadium, and and Duke just, like, kicks the boss's head off and saves a one-liner. 
And that's not a very narratively deep ending, but if you think about how the whole narrative of that game is there's an alien invasion and you need to fight your way to the very end to like the its commander and defeat him. This is very satisfying. <laughs> there's this sort of like, you know, I came all the way through this game, and I acquired all these skills through the game, I died thousands of times. Um, to to get to this point where I could defeat the final like big boss and for that there to be that payoff at the very end is like that's that's really cool. And then I can kind of remember, you know, I'm reminded at this moment where in the intensity of the final boss battle, I might not be thinking about the narrative at all. I'm just thinking about, like, oh, how do I dodge all these rockets and whatever. Um, suddenly, th you're just sort of like, oh, that's what all of this was for. You know, I was defending Earth, and now I've triumphed, and now I'm a hero, and that feels great. You know, Kevin, you kind of talked about this early on in our discussion, but, you know, why should developers care about the ending of their game? I, I, I'm looking at the Steam achievements for Doom 2016 right now, and only 26% of players completed the campaign. I think, on any I think that's a pretty standard number for, for most games. I think it is something so, like 25% and under complete. So why, why, should, why should they spend money and resources on making that a good part of the game when a, barely a quarter of the players even get that far? Uh, in some ways, the question is its own answer. Um, if you want players to have an incentive to play all the way through the ends, an ending is a good way to do that. Like, very cynically speaking, uh, uh, I know a lot of people are really, really disappointed in the ending to Mass Effect 3, but um, let's face it, uh, it got people talking about it, <laughs> and it got people curious, like people who might have given up on Mass Effect on 1 or 2, they're like, oh, okay, now I need to play through this whole series again, just to get an idea of what everyone is talking about. Um, and that never would have happened if the ending of Mass Effect 3 was just okay. Like, if the, if the ending was great, then yeah, maybe it would have the same effect. Maybe you'd have people talking about it in conventions and stuff, pressuring, like, other fans to, like, you know, go and play the game all the way through. Um, because the ending was terrible, it encouraged a lot of people to pick up Mass Effect 3 when they didn't. Um, but if it was just okay, like, it was just sort of like, uh, it was an ending, it's not really memorable, then yeah, that wouldn't have been worth spending any time at, at all. So a lot of it is really just, like, go big or go home. And... Um, I think for games that are more focused on narrative, uh, because people expect endings, because um, the whole act of shaping narrative is you take the chaos of human experience and uh, and you give it a beginning, a middle, and an end. I mean, a lot of that is what writing fiction is. Uh, it, people tend to feel that work is incomplete if it doesn't have an ending, even if like they had to... Obviously, like you put a lot of work into it. Uh, you can go through... The like, fun parts these days is you can just sell it as DLC. Yeah, and I find that really <laughs> underwhelming as well, um, yeah. personally speaking. Uh, but even like, even DLC tends to be self-contained. It tends to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Unless it's free-to-play, in which case it just goes on forever, because that's the business model. Uh, but I think also players tend to like to feel that they've mastered something, and that the game has acknowledged it. Like, achievements sort of do that too, but on a very much smaller level for someone to say like you know yeah i conquered this game i beat this quest or like to be like uh so a good example of this uh this is a little more like uh this is really niche but uh roguelike well roguelikes like uh nethack nethack is one of the most like popular roguelikes before the big uh roguelike boom and being that game is near impossible like uh without tons and tons and tons of like wiki research or research in the game by playing it. There are people who have been playing that game for like a decade and they haven't reached the end yet because it is so hard. 
And, uh, and there's like a million ways to die. That's like a big selling point in the game that you can die by like drowning in a puddle or <laughs> when you're like paralyzed <laughs> or whatever. Um, or like choking on a meatball. Or it's, it's hilarious just how many ways there are to die. So when you finally reach the end of that game, it really feels like a significant achievement. It's not like um, a lot of games that are like a lot easier, like everyone's beating like Call of Duty Modern Warfare. We're like, well, you know, time to put that game back on the shelf and work on the next one. It's like not, it, it's not a big thing in and of itself. But if you beat NetHack, and if you have proof that you beat NetHack, this has been a thing on like, uh, the the culture for this game, the fandom for this game since, like, the days of Usenet. Like, the customary thing to do when you have beaten NetHack is to, like, post your stats and announce to the world that you have beaten NetHack. <laughs> because now you have entered a small elite club of which there are probably less than a thousand members. And that, I think, is an incredible incentive for people to struggle through this incredibly sadistic, like, well, incredibly masochistic game, which I think without that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't bother. These days, especially because I spend more of my time talking about games and thinking about games than I do actually playing games, I'm really enjoying shorter experiences more. And I enjoy, like, for me, I want to see the credits on every game that I play. That's just something, in, I don't know if that's innate to my, my character uh, or my personality, but I just want to see the credits. So I will play a game all the way to the end and then pick up a new game. So when I get to play, you know, shorter experiences like What Remains of Edith Finch, um, I'm coming to appreciate those more as I get older and I have, you know, less time to spend playing games. If if there were games, if there are games designed that never had an ending, uh, I would just, I would, I don't think I would still be playing video games because I just wouldn't have the time. Um, that's why I kind of don't really enjoy when someone tells me it's like, oh, it's an open world game. I'm like. Fuck. Like, I don't have 80 hours to like spend here, <laughs> even if I wanted to. Um, so I, don't, I'm, I think, you know, it comes back to each person's why people come to games in the first place um, and what type of game that you enjoy playing. Yeah, I think, you know, so I'm, I, I feel like in some ways I'm very different from you in that regard because I will play a game until I don't enjoy playing it anymore. And to, to give you an example, like I don't think I've finished any of the large open world Bethesda games. I've never seen the credits on those games. I'm always intrigued by the idea of the world that they've crafted and and the uh, additions they make to each one as they iterate on that engine. But I'll typically play them for probably about 40 hours and then put them away having never seen the ending. And sometimes it feels like with Skyrim, I kind of felt underwhelmed when I put that game away, even though I had spent so long in that world. Uh, but a game like Fallout 4, I, I sort of reached a point where I was like, you know what, I, I got the, the fun out of this game that I wanted, and it, and then I put it back on the shelf, even though I I had not even explored half of that world, I think. Um, and I've, I kind of have to make rules for myself when I play Bethesda games now, where I'm like, I'm going to play this until I start to get bored. <laughs> and then, you know, I'll do all the side quests and you know, interact with all of the building or whatever. And then I'll, there will be a certain point where I just like sit down and I'm like, I have to beat the game today. And then I'll just mainline, you know, the, 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 the game, the, the story. And I feel like certain games establish themselves as being the type of game that you are supposed to finish. Like when you put a Uncharted game into your console, the, I think the idea is that you're, you're there for the story. You're, you're there for the ride and you're going to see it through to the end. Where when I put a game like Destiny into my console, uh, I, you know, there's the, 
the common phrase that people say, which is, you know, the game of destiny doesn't start until the narrative ends, which is kind of true. Like I put that game in because it doesn't really have an ending. Like you kind of perpetually play that game. And I think as a game player, um, this is one of the things I've had to kind of come to terms with myself is I think those are the experiences that I gravitate towards more. I, I play the, the online component of call of duty, uh, well, I haven't played any in a long time, but when I was playing Call of Duty, it was like I would play that. That was like the thing I did. I'd get home, I'd put Call of Duty in, and I'd play it. There's no end to the online part. You prestige, you start over again, you keep going. Um, I do that with Destiny. I've been playing a lot of Overwatch now. There's no, there's not necessarily a driving narrative with a conclusion at the end of it, but um, that's just the kind of game player that, that I find I am. Now, I, I also try to play some of the more narrative-driven games, but for me, that's almost like... A chore. I don't like calling it a chore because that implies like I'm not enjoying my time with it. But it's it's sort of like a. Um, I don't know. I don't have a good. I don't, I don't have a good word for it. Maybe uh, maybe I haven't fully come to terms with like my own feelings on that. But well, from a purely ludic perspective, like purely as a game, and not even thinking of it in terms of narrative, uh, even for games like Overwatch or games like Destiny, I think it becomes even more important bizarrely that these games have endings because it instead of thinking of one game with an overarching narrative with an ending at the end um like think about why an overwatch match is only like what is it like two minutes um and why like there's an overall larger progression like you're picking up new guns and equipment and stuff in destiny um but you have all these short little games like in between that sort of like they're what you're really doing they're what they're the actual gameplay part as you're doing all this progression stuff to, to build up for like to get bigger guns so you can like um perform better in these in these time challenges and i think a good way to sort of think around what the meaning that endings have from a from a ludic perspective in the in these games is like think about what it would be like to play a match of overwatch that literally never ends like people's like scores go up you capture the point um, you can like, like there's just, there's no time limit. There's no point limit. You just keep playing forever. Um, think about how sort of like after a while that would eventually start to feel meaningless. Oh, I think you might be describing my ideal game I was mentioning earlier. <laughs> well, one of my other favorite gaming experiences was, uh, day Z back when it was a mod for Arma two oh, and, and how that was just sort of like a perpetual world, uh, persistent world with, with no, with no real goal. It, your goal was essentially survival. And I, you know, I guess in a sense there, there could potentially, you could consider it an ending when your character dies and then you start a new game as a new character. But there was, but if you managed to survive, there was no end to that game. There was nothing sort of forcing you out of that world. There was no story telling you this is the end of that experience. And that was, that was a, a game that like, uh, and it, experience in a game that I really cherish because it was starting to get close to sort of my ideal of a video game. Well, Daisy is an interesting example of a game that uh, instead of having a narrative put into it, you take a, it's designed so that you take a narrative out of it. Uh, so when mm. you hear players talk about Daisy or the story of a particular character from the beginning of their game till their death, um, they'll weave a narrative around it. It's very immersion in the game. It's more like real-life human experience. And just a whole bunch of things happen, and a lot of them aren't important. Like, nobody wants to hear your story about who you spent, like, two hours picking up equipment. But um, when you talk about the game to other players, 
And the, the game is very much specifically, I can tell, designed around enabling people to tell these stories. Um, it allows these sort of moments to emerge that you sort of weave into a narrative yourself, which you impose a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, and I think this is the excitement for a lot of people to play DZ again for like the 50 bajillionth time and have something totally new happen, which is so astounding and different and intense that people can even enjoy it vicariously. That if you're at a con or something, you're telling people about this one like insane run that you had, um, that they're impressed, <laughs> even though they're not, they didn't like play through the game itself. And if you look at what happened in the code, if you look at the logs of like your player data, like all that you really did was like, I don't know, turn some electrons in your monitor on, on and off. You clicked on a couple buttons. But the fantasy that the game developed, delivered to you in this sort of like chaos of experiences, like you organically, the way that human memory works, that you created the narrative. And I think that there's there, the most exciting genre of narrative-based games now does, like it focuses very heavily on that. Like Dwarf Fortress is probably the er example of that. Um, the game does not have a fixed beginning and, and end and you kind of impose uh you know what is the backstory for your dwarves and all that but um there are so many possible endings built into the game for you to sort of discover like i mean this is a kind of mega spoiler but the thing where if you die dig deep enough um in in any direction on any tile on the map you end up in basically hell and then uh all the demons come out and overrun your fortress because they're like end boss level like dudes um but then you find these like po super powerful like end game items all over the uh, map and they're made out of the same material that like the that hell was made of and like before you're wondering like where did all this stuff come from and now you know now you know why there aren't any dwarves like <laughs> you've kind of created and lived through this you've created yourself this narrative of like this is what happened to that like that made this abandoned dungeon in every other like rpg like Here's how it came to be abandoned. You, and you discovered that on your own. Um, and that's all, like... It creates this illusion that you as a player, like, w wandered into the wilderness and you wrote this story yourself, basically, from scratch. But no, it was left there for you. It was just sort of set up in a way that made it feel like it was, it was your own. So, on paper, that sounds like the thing that I want. But <laughs> often, you know, the more I played DayZ, the more I was just like, well, fuck this. Like, I'm tired of, of starting a character looting for three hours and then dying um but i did have some really good experiences that too like steve and i were playing daisy around the same time we played it together and that's also some of my favorite multiplayer gaming moments but i still find myself gravitating towards more linear experiences because i guess there's that sense of accomplishment like i can i can shelve this now i'm done with this um and maybe it's just because i just you know i tend to have less time but I also collect games like they're going out of style for some reason. You know, like I'm never going to have a time to finish my backlog. So would you guys, maybe this is a weird question, but do you guys think that, like what you said, Kevin, games that have stories taken out of them versus games that have stories put into them, which way, is there a right way or is it like the ideal situation, a combination of the both? Steven, maybe maybe I can pass it to you first. Like what, do you, what would your ideal game ending be or like design choice be in that like do you want only that emergent style gameplay where you come away with a story um this is difficult this is a difficult one for me to answer because i think 
I think that that having different kinds of video games, and this is maybe where the term video game starts to fall short, is because it's such a broad, you know, it, it covers such a large swath of interactive media. But yeah, for me, I, I typically prefer the sort of persistent world, the ongoing story where I'm the one crafting my own narrative out of the game. But that doesn't mean that I don't then also enjoy games that have crafted narratives put into them. I mean, again, people are probably exhausted of me talking about Proteus, a game that I think has <laughs> I think has a very clear narrative, um, but told in a very special way. And that's something that I that's a game that I I treasure very highly for its its storytelling. But that's not a story that that's not a story that I pulled from that game. That's a, that's a story that was put into that game. Um, so for me to say like I only prefer one, I don't think is one hundred percent accurate. But if if I'm on a desert island and I have to choose one out of the two, I think I am going to pick the the sort of the persistent world, the the one where I'm I'm the one crafting the narrative, or at least given the illusion of crafting the narrative from the components of the game that were put there by the developer. So are we saying then that those two examples that we just threw out, are those like the ends of the spectrum, like the the left and the right end of this, of this, you know, idea that we're talking about? Are those like the extreme cases and somewhere in between the games can also fall somewhere in between. Is that kind of the direction that we want to head? Well, I think when, when we bring this, when, when this topic was first pitched, the first thing I thought of was the idea of games that have a single narrative ending versus multiple narrative endings. And I think when, like I said earlier, when people think about the endings to video games, the first thing that probably comes to most people's mind is, you know, that, that final cutscene followed by credits, you know, which is usually the, the end of the narrative of that game. Um, so I think when we're talking about these like persistent worlds, we're talking about like a far extreme to one side. Uh, from a developer's perspective, uh, the so this is the kind of decision uh, when making a game that a designer generally has to make close to the very beginning. Um, I think it's really hard to start making a game that's one ending and just be like, you know, oh, let's tack on a couple more. Uh, I mean, you could do the reverse and have a game that's designed for multiple endings and pair it down to one, but it's going to feel very empty. Um, the thing is, like this, there's practical considerations to to whether to, which of those kinds of games to make, and I think that they work better for different designs. Um, like for example, like Four Horsemen has eight endings in it, and I could have made it with just one, but it'd be a very different kind of story. It's like no matter if it had just one ending, then no matter what you did. Uh, throughout the game, their choices like ultimately wouldn't have any effect on on the outcome, and like uh, that would create a sort of fatalistic theme, uh, <laughs> which is not really what I'm going for. It's funny that like you guys have mentioned it a couple times the end credits as a sort of point where you can like shelve the game and not have to like pick it up anymore because when you have a game with eight endings, it's like unless you have already seen like the other seven. <laughs> uh, when you reach that credit scene, you have seen about a seventh of the game. Well, it doesn't work out that perfectly because not all the play the storylines are the same length. But when when a developer commits to multiple endings, they're, what they're really saying is like, well, 
where we could have made one game, we're actually making two or three or or eight. <laughs> because the thing about choices or any significant choice with consequences in a video game is that like now you have to make everything that happens after one choice and you have to make everything that happens after the other choice. And often these are mutually exclusive. So when you have branches, it's like this cuts the amount of attention that you can put on each branch by half. Yeah, I, I can only imagine like how like technically and narratively complicated that can get so quickly. Oh yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I made a visual novel instead of an RPG. Because to do this on a sort of like Bethesda level, I would have to be Bethesda. It's <laughs> just, um, we, we tend to take this for granted and just how like, uh, oh, a choice you made at the beginning like affects things at the end. That's really cool. But the whole game has to be designed around that. And um, my favorite example is from uh, Tsukihime, which is a visual novel um, from Japan in the, I think about like 10 years ago. It was a spinoff of the like Fate Stay Night series, I think. I, I forget. Uh, it's tied to some like really big visual novel series. But there's a seemingly inconsequential decision you make at the very beginning, which is, um, like, on your very first day of school as a high school student, you either choose to eat in the cafeteria or you eat in the classroom. And in most other games, it would be a throwaway choice, or it doesn't matter, right? Or it's like one of them gives you, like, plus one in one stat, and the other one gives you plus one to another. But depending on what you choose, you end up on either side of this, like, huge vampire versus werewolf war. And... <laughs> You're like uh, the female lead in this romance game, and you, you like you play as a male protagonist. The female lead is different depending on which one you choose in the beginning, and the entire game, like this is this is two games tied together with this one decision. And I just think about how ballsy it must have been for someone with a limited budget and like a limited time frame. Yeah. And, just sit down and think, like, we're going to make two games, and we're going to make it branch at the beginning, and a lot of players are never going to see half of this game. They're never going to know that that entire, like, other storyline was there. And that's an enormous I could, risk. I could imagine someone pitching that in, like, an EA conference room, and then just everyone would be like, get out. Just leave. <laughs> well, I, think, like, <laughs> I, think, I think Dragon Age had something very similar to that, where I think it was, like, at the end of the first act of the original Dragon Age, it had you made a pretty significant choice that then gated a good portion of the game off from you. But I'm, I'm curious, Kevin, um, when you were designing Four Horsemen, were you intending people to play through it multiple times to see the various endings? Or or is did you design it more that like people would play through it once and that experience was theirs and they would they would just sort of carry that one experience forward? Well, while I don't expect anyone to play through all the endings because there's a lot, uh, some some people have, and I'm like really flattered and impressed that they have. Uh, but um, what I was sort of geared towards was that players would go in maybe not knowing exactly how many endings there were, or just knowing how much variation there was. Uh, they would get to one of the more disappointing endings, it would be easier to reach, and they'd just be sort of like, maybe things would have turned out differently if I had made some different decisions. And they go play through it again, and suddenly they discover this huge new section of the game they didn't know was there before. Um, personally, when that happens to me in games, I am... Like, I, I love that. I love it when I, like, play through something, and I'm like, oh, I kind of understand what this is, and then, like... But it's disappointing at the end, and I go back, and suddenly there's this huge rabbit hole that I missed the first time around. I'm like, holy shit. Like, my favorite example of this is uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, where if you go in completely blind and nobody tells you anything about how this game is supposed to go, you could be forgiven for only playing through half the game, getting to the point where you face 
uh, I think it's like Simon Richter for the first time. They're like, oh, it's an inversion of a Castlevania final boss where I'm fighting the traditional player character as the traditional final boss, and that's kind of cool. And it ends tragically, and there's a credits roll and everything. But um, but if you do that, the game is pretty short. And I can imagine a lot of players being like, what, that was it? You know, this is a legendary Castlevania Symphony of the Night that I've heard so much about. It's like, this is... I'm going to go back and see, and, you know, I'm going to find secrets. I'm going to see if there's anything more. And if you do that, you find little hints that, like, wait, maybe that isn't really the end of the game. And there's a way you can play the final boss fight that unlocks more. And to do that and unlock, to, like, end up saving the final boss instead of killing him. And then realizing you're not even at the final boss. That there's an entire another half of the game to play through at that point. That's is that, is that when the castle? Is that when the castle flips? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I, I, I haven't played that game in a long time, but I have watched some people speed running it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I remember this." When you put it in the show notes, <laughs> I was like racking my brain trying to recall like what, what what happened in that game. So I love that as a player, and it's such a huge expense. And like, if they had just if they had not done that, if they had just made that the whole game, like that's it, you kill Richter, and that's the end of the game. They could have been done with that game like in half the time, and it wouldn't have been nearly as good. But I love it when uh, developers take risks like that. And uh, as someone who's really committed to making games that people really enjoy playing, instead of, oh, that was nice, and then it's like putting it down. Like, that's the kind of risk that I endeavor to take when I can afford to make them. Well, Far Cry 4 did something uh, where... If you didn't bring it up, I was going to, Jared. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, if you, like, the very beginning of that game, um, one of the bad guys, you're, you're sitting in the, a room with them, and he's like, hey, just wait here. And I'll be back. He, take, he like takes that. a phone call and leaves. He asks you to sit there. Yeah. And he's like, just wait here. And it's like, and then nothing happens. You're like, oh, so now I'm supposed to go and leave and do things. But if you actually just wait there and you wait and you sit in that room for 15 real minutes, he comes back and that's the end of the game. The game just ends. Like the, you can beat the game in 15 minutes. And the credits roll for, and you know, everything. For, for an open world game that people will probably spend, you know, 60 hours in, um, they gave you that choice, which is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to bring up Nier here. Is that okay with you, Steve? Oh, yeah, of course. Because I, I think <laughs> I think that this is an important place to bring up Nier. I mean, I just barely started the game. I'm not. I'm only like six hours into it. Um, but I've beaten the game, quotes around beaten. Uh, I've seen credits roll in that game about five times already. And uh, it's really interesting. Like, it's, it, it's a, doing that thing where it's telling a story in a way that only a video game can. Um, I'm not really spoiling too much here, but... The first time I beat the game, I was just, I was in the inventory screen. I was like looking at the systems, like oh, how does this work? How do I equip things? And uh, one of the things that you have is chipsets, and they give you different abilities. They boost some stats, and there's one at the top that you, that you start with, just called your OS chip. And for people who don't know, you play like as a robot in that game. Um, and the description in the OS chip says like this contains your operating system. Don't uninstall this. And I'm like. Hmm. So the first thing I do is unequip it, and my character just dies, and that's the end of the game. I was like, "That is brilliant." And so I had to like <laughs> reload my save and and you know it, it, uh, start again. And uh, it's, it's it's I think that's stuff like that is super interesting. And that's um, why there's a quest that's early why I was on where it's Kevin like about if he if he had designed his game for players to play through it multiple times because I think Near is a game that that is designed to encourage the player to see the ending multiple times. And obviously that one's a little different than maybe some games like, um, I don't know. I think of like maybe binding of Isaac. That's a game that's designed for you to see the ending multiple times through slightly different perspectives each time. But you know, that that's a 
a game where they put thought into like, well, if we encourage people to play this game many, many times, see the ending many times, how can we then reward them additionally each time? Yeah, and like telling new stories or having different gameplay, um, you know, that's while that's expensive to do, I think is definitely um, one of those things that only video games can do. But I think like, you know, Mass Effect is a game that has, uh, I'm talking specifically, I guess, about Mass Effect 1, can end in some different ways. But I don't think they, I don't think that, uh, who was that? Bioware? Was that Bioware? Yeah, it was Bioware. I don't think that they like fully intended for the average player to play through that game multiple times. And sure, there's like hardcore fans that have gone through and and seen how their choices affect every single thing throughout the entire series. But I think that that game was specifically designed so that you, you play through it once and that story is yours and that's what you carry forward. And that's the kind of thing that I take away from most games. I, there are a lot of games that have alternate endings, um, but I stick by my decisions and I'm, if I'm curious, sometimes I'll go and just like YouTube the other endings. Um, but most of the time, I don't even do that. I, I rarely play through a game more than once. Well, the freedom that Bioware games give you, and I think this is this is definitely true for Mass Effect, but I think it's even more true for their predecessors, uh, um, Knight, Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2. Um, so, I mean, you're right. With a game that long and... Uh, with the Mass Effect series, considering that the choices carry over from the game to game, yeah, very few players are going to go back and you know see what they missed by choosing differently. But if you look at games as if you look at the fundamental unit of a game as the choice, and that if you look at games as sets of choices, um, which is sort of the sort of like predominant way of thinking of them now. Um, yeah, go back. And, go back are, and listen to our empowerment episode from <laughs> our last yeah. one. <laughs> so. Um, Choices, for choices to be me- meaningful, they, they need to have significant consequences. And, uh, I mean, this was much more obvious in Knights of the Old Republic than it was in Mass Effect, because you had the whole light side, dark side thing, and um, players go into the game kind of understanding this. Um, and it was also very heavily marketed, so it's like nobody was surprised that this is what they're getting into. But for the plot to change so significantly over, like, the general gist of what you're like, not any one choice, but the, the general pattern of your decisions, um, where you're like a Sith Lord or you're a Jedi Knight. Um, it really lends a certain kind of gravity to your choices, even if you never see how things would go out differently. So if you play as a Sith Lord, if you go down the dark side path in, uh, that's the old Republic. Um, then every time the game guilt trips you for what you've done, it's something that you've done. Knowing that those choices were avoidable, that the game presented you a choice and you went down this path, like that lends a sort of emotional resonance. And the guilt is really real. It's not like, oh, I'm playing a character who made the bad decision. It's like, no, I made this decision and now I'm living with the consequences. Um, And Mass Effect, you know, it it does a more of a like lawful chaotic thing. So it's like there's not so clear cut a sort of good and evil. But when you see like characters die (laughs) because you did something, that like you know you could have saved them uh it was a tough moral choice and you just didn't choose the right way like yeah maybe you can load the save file from before if you have like 20 bajillion save files to try to save that character but just to sort of be stuck like two hours after you made that choice and to for that choice to be significant enough you remember it and just being like oh my god this this person is gone now and from both a narrative standpoint as in like well now they can't do x and y and z which would cause alpha beta and and uh, gamma 
but also like you no longer have this person in your party and they don't have access to their abilities you have to adapt around that like you feel that sense of loss really deeply and i think if the game didn't give you a choice if it pulled like a final fantasy 7 it's like this character dies at this cryptid point then it wouldn't quite have that power this feeling of because like a big part of like bioware games in general a major theme they like to play with is the idea that the power that you get as a player character gives you an incredible amount of responsibility. And this responsibility can end in tragedy. And that only works if the game gives you the uh, the, concept, the ability to choose differently. No, well, Kevin, Jared had kind of asked me earlier if, if I had a preference of like one type of game ending over another. But now I'm curious uh, sort of what your preference is. Do you prefer games that have a single narrative ending do you prefer games that have a you know multiple endings that sort of uh, attempt to represent player agency in the story, or do you pers- or do you prefer something more along the lines of what I was saying, sort of like a, a persistent world with no no clear ending but stories that come from it? Where where do you kind of land on that? So I think of this in a sort of like soldiery kind of way, in that like uh, I prefer the right tool for the job. There are certainly some games that work much better with a single ending because a single narrative is the entire point. Or or sometimes conversely, the narrative doesn't matter at all and therefore it doesn't make sense to invest any resources in the ending whatsoever. Um, but like a game which is a sandbox for you to tell stories from, like really the only way you could run it then is to just you know have it go on and it, it feels like imposing an ending in that kind of game is actually sort of cheating the player of some of their agency to tell their own stories. Like, if Dwarf Fortress had a win condition, for example, that would be really disappointing. Like, oh, you know, you break into hell and you fight the, like, demons and whatever. And then, like, if, if it was possible to, like, I don't know, find a magic sword that would banish the demons forever, this is the kind of thing that be that would be satisfying in a game with an identical plot and different mechanics. But I feel like the way that Dark Fortress to set up, this would be a, a real buzzkill, you know, especially if you're in the middle of building, like, a giant dwarven, like, mega fortress, like, prison or something to, like, envelop all of hell in a giant obsidian sphere or something like batshit creative, like, people tend to do in that game, and then you accidentally discover this, this like, win condition and, and all of your efforts are, like, completely wasted. It's, fun- um, it's funny that you mentioned that, because in Minecraft I arbitrarily keep myself from going to kill the uh the the nether dragon or whatever the quote-unquote last boss is and i know it the game doesn't end after you do that but that's sort of what most people consider like the last thing to do in that game and i refuse i refuse to even pursue that route because i just like living in that like living in that world building my pixel art creations and and not thinking about like what the end of that game means minecraft was uh very heavily inspired by Dwarf Fortress, and it's kind of interesting to see how um, that design that design conver- uh, diverged. But I think you're feeling what I would be feeling about that. It's like you know, no, I kind of trust the direction that Dwarf Fortress went in with that instead, because for there to be a hell that you have just discovered and not really defining what that is or how the how it ends, like not imposing a narrative to it. I think makes it a lot more interesting and exciting for that kind of game. Well, the player gets to decide. They get to decide how this ends. And I've seen um, on the Bay 12 forums, people come up with very creative ways to deal with what is supposed to be an endgame state where you like die and there's no hope. Um, 
people like turning hell into like a giant zoo for example where like demons just sort of like run around indefinitely and they're like <laughs> they can't reach your fortress because of ai bugs um that's really fascinating to me and you kind of it's very compelling to develop a narrative as a player around that as in like you know oh we have finally conquered the legions of hell and now they're our little prison and 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 people come up with silly ways to like in the flavor of their own story it's like oh let's like set up a little like arrow root bunker where you can shoot at the demons and they can't hurt you and it becomes like an amusement park <laughs> so it's like in defeating the demons you have become the demons you've created this like horrible torture like thing um but obviously that would work in a game like zelda <laughs> you know it's like different <laughs> different games well require... I, I think some people would like to set up some sort of like torture chamber for chickens in zelda yeah and i think the zelda is a great example on how like subverting player agency can actually be really rewarding with the chickens because um the only reason why you would hit a chicken over and over and over again is to see what happens right <laughs> and the game trains you to think that nothing does you know you you could hit a chicken like half a dozen times and all it does is squawk and run away and it's on the 12th time when because like you're the kind of player who would get the sadistic player uh, like sadistic pleasure from beating up a defenseless, a defenseless animal once you have passed that point of no return where the game is absolutely sure you are a jerk that's when it sends the <laughs> giant flock of chickens on you so there's one game that i talk about or tell people about who don't necessarily play video games or they haven't played a video game since like mortal Kombat on the snes or whatever since arcades were a thing. Um, it's, you know, this idea of the story that only video games can tell. And I talk, I tell them about Red Dead Redemption. And I'm sorry if you guys wanted to, to bring this up, but I think that I would be remiss if we didn't talk about it. No, go for it. Um, that game is, I think, the what I want every video game story to be. Um, for the most part, it's an open world game. You're a cowboy running around doing things. There's a story that you can follow. There's some really great moments throughout the game. It all kind of culminates at the end where your main character has a standoff with the, the posse outside the barn and he gets shot and he dies. And it's like, man, that, that was, that was a really sad way for this game to end. And it kind of fades to black. And all of a sudden you're 20 years in the future and you're his son now. You're playing as his son. And there's no nothing. You don't have any... It's like, okay, did they just drop me back into this world? They just give you control back. It's like, oh, is this, is this new game plus? What is this? Uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm John Marshton's son now. And you can see a town out in the distance. So what do you do? You have no more quests, nothing else to do in the game. You ride towards the town. Someone's in the middle of the town talking. So you run up to them and you find out what John Marshton's son is up to. And you end up getting on a short quest. It's no longer than maybe 10 minutes. You ride your horse to a riverbank, and there's the guy who killed your dad. And <laughs> there's no long monologue. He kind of talks a little bit. And he's just there fishing or peeing. I don't remember exactly what the guy's doing. His back is to you, and you have full control this entire time. And your instinct is, well, this is the motherfucker who just like almost made me cry at the end of a video game. And you pull the trigger and he's dead. You shoot him in the back of the head, one bullet, and then there's the late title card. And I just thought that was the most brilliant way to tell a story in a video game in a way that wouldn't have worked in a cinematic way. Just because it was so natural and you got that real satisfying... It was like the ultimate revenge moment. That was, that and was, the, that was the buzzword when that game 
came out. <laughs> I remember <What>? every, <laughs> everyone like dusted off the dictionaries and pulled out Denouement because that game oh, had a yeah. great one. <laughs> that, that game, I mean, it, it, it was, did have it was brilliant. That, like, and I think it starts even before that part that you're talking about, Jared, because like the whole point of that game is you're hunting down this bandit and you kill him. Like that should be the end of the game. That was the whole thing yeah. you were after that whole time. And then there's the whole you know, returning to your home life and raising your son and helping your wife out around the ranch and all that stuff was all super cool. Cause you think like, isn't this, isn't this game over? Like, didn't I, they could have ended the game like three times. Yeah. So <laughs> that game is, is really magic in, in the way that it, for an open world ended. game. I mean, what they accomplished with that was, was, I don't, I have never, I haven't seen anything since. So it, it was really special. So, um, and that's the kind of thing I would like to see more of, you know, uh, when you mentioned that, uh, it got me thinking about something actually from my like uh, creative writing background back when I did that in undergrad. I remember one of the big lessons about endings um, in the writing program is that like the strength of an ending is not based on the ending itself. It's based on everything that happens before it. And I think the challenge for a big open world game and like putting any kind of ending to a game like that is something that contextualizes everything you've done up to that point. Like, the ending of Red Dead Redemption only works because you've already spent, invested so much time and energy, like, doing all this random stuff in the game, which ultimately creates a picture of a person's life. A, like, uh, a set of arbitrary experiences that, when strung together, create a, a legacy. And to see that through the eyes of another character as your son, and to sort of, like, face that legacy you know, face the person who eliminated it. It draws into uh, into into living color. It's like, here is this person that I created like from like forty hours ago, uh, and played through from birth to death. And this is sort of the capstone to their whole life. This is the capstone to all these experiences that I've created. And it, it's a funeral. Um you have a funeral for your own character. You're sending them off with this act of revenge. Um, the inverse of that, I noticed that you guys mentioned this in the uh, in the show notes, which I was fascinated by. Uh, Spec Ops: The Line is very much like that too. Um, that yeah. I felt was one of the most brilliant, uh, narratively brilliant endings I've ever seen in a video game, which would not be possible yeah. without the fact that it is you. It is you who has been staring down the barrel of that first-person shooter gun the whole time. It's you who's done all this stuff. It's you who has to face all these consequences, and ultimately, it is like you are your own final boss. And that was really, really cool to me. <laughs> and I think that, like, I find myself, I just, I, I don't end up being around people who are into his games as I am. Like, I just, I, I work in television and, uh, you know, a lot of older people in the industry, they just don't, they don't play games and they don't have time, they don't have an interest. But And I tell them I do a podcast about gaming. And they're like, oh, really? Um, I find myself, like, I want to justify why games are important. And I think those types of experiences are important to that discussion and you know a lot of people want video games to be art um that's a whole nother you know can of worms but i think that that type of narrative is important in making in keeping games in that discussion and and i guess um you know not not necessarily you don't have to defend why games should be exist and why people like why am i in my 30s still playing video games because they're important. I think they tell interesting stories that only they can. So, um, you know, being able to point to that and show people like how cool video games are. It's not it's not Call of Duty, which you see on the news. You know, it's not Grand Theft Auto. Not every single game is like that. 
And this this probably feels like a good time to start moving towards the conclusion of this discussion. Uh, do you like how I worked that in, Jared? Are we getting towards the, the first the first ending <laughs> the, of the yeah, podcast? Well, yeah. If you want, continue listening for the. We have twenty six more endings. Uh, <laughs> I hope you're in a comfortable seat. Um, we typically end by um, asking if what 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 we want to see in the future. So, Kevin, in in regards to the endings of video games, is there some way that you think game developers, the game industry, could improve on the way that they handle the endings to video games? Well, there's a very low hanging fruit. And um, that fruit to me is to care about endings at all. <laughs> I mean, like obviously, some people do. Um, this whole this whole podcast, you know, this whole episode, we've been talking about great examples of um, developers who did care about endings enough for us to remember them fondly and talk about them here. But I think the tendency is very strong especially because of that market logic. Yeah, you know, if 20% of people are going to see the end of this game, then why bother at all? Um, the tendency is to just let games kind of end anticlimactically. And I, I understand from a product, production perspective why that works. Um, often you'll have a timetable for a game and you'll your ship date will hit like a couple of months before the end of that timetable realistically and you're just sort of like, we got to ship what we have and it's going to end very anticlimactically. But I think that if you respect what players like get when they purchase a game, the kind of trust they put that they're okay, I'm going to invest like uh, whatever amount of time, whether it's two hours or or like a hundred and twenty, that they they trust this game to sort of like deliver them an experience. Um, regardless of whether the ending is something like you know much more open ended or whether it's a uh, something much more cinematic, I feel like that player, the moment that they sit down and start playing the game, that they kind of trust it will feel complete to them. That they're not just going to be left hanging like, oh, killed the final boss and now suddenly the credits roll and there's no there's nothing. Even something silly like the end of God Hand uh, which is a music video <laughs> uh, that in which the lyrics include every special attack in the game. Like, Hell yeah. narratively that's nonsense, but it's it's satisfying. It gives the player a feeling that their decisions meant something. I think that's really what the root of what players want out of like their experience at the whole. To look back and be like, all that stuff I did mattered, and it can be something mattering as simply as like, oh, I used this technique really well and didn't lose any health during this boss fight, or it could be something as abstract as like. Um, oh, I did all the steps to save uh, Curly at the end of Cave Story, this character who was supposed to die tragically, but I did, like, these 10 billion, like, little steps. Uh, it wasn't 10 billion. I think it was, like, four. <laughs> um, and and I managed to avert fate and do the impossible. Like, to give that player that sense of pride in what they've done um, is is invaluable. And maybe not all players, well, maybe only a tiny fraction of players will make it there, but I think that... For players to know that's there, that's there waiting for them. If they sit down and oh, with a game that maybe they picked up 10 years ago and they never finished, that's worth it for them to make it to the end and that they walk away feeling satisfied that they had a good meal. Um, like, can you imagine eat, like going to Burger King and getting like um, like a, a Whopper and a, some, some fries and a drink and you take a couple of bites and then the burger disappears? Like, I think that kind of letdown is what players feel a lot. And... <laughs> I just think as a producer of a creative work in general that I, I feel like I have an obligation to give people a sense of, of a complete experience, whatever that means, which is not going to be the same for every game, you know. 
Um, and it's going to be different depending on what kind of experience it is. But just this feeling that something can walk away and feel like, man, that felt good. Or like, man, I did something. Because like the illusion that you have done something with your life is the greatest gift that video games can give you. I think I would be okay if every game just ended with like a Bollywood song and dance oh, number with yeah. the entire cast. Yeah, now you're, talk- oh, now you're talking yeah. about language, Jared. <laughs> but really, so Jared, what, what would you like to see improved? Trying not to emulate movies or books in their narrative. I think that exploring new ways like Nier is doing or like Red Dead Redemption did, I think that is what I would like developers to move towards. Um, if they want to tell a, a story, especially a story that's drawn out over you know a 40-hour long game, um, I want the developers to respect the gamer's time. You know, I, I really enjoyed my time with a game like Dying Light, but it had one of the most unsatisfying endings in a lot of <laughs> games that I've played. It's literally like a, a quick time event after you spent like all this time like gearing mm-hmm. up, like upgrading your weapons and be- becoming like a badass parkour zombie slayer, and you don't do any zombie slaying or parkouring at the end of that game. It's like, what? Do you, what? Why did I just go through all this? Yeah. <laughs> um, it didn't ruin the whole game for me, but you know, I felt a little bit cheated at the end. Like the developer didn't didn't expect me to get there, or uh, all of the work that I did was for none. So, um, yeah, I mean. Figure a way to make it work. I know it's expensive and not everybody sees it, but I think if you do it right and people talk about it, more people will be drawn to that. I just want to bring, uh, because you when you mentioned that, uh, it really drove home what is important to ending, uh, well, about endings to me. Uh, if you guys have played Silent Hill 2 and you think about how much people love that game, uh, a wonderful story and maybe not that great as a game, um, what? But, I'll fight you on that. I think that game. I think the <laughs> gameplay was fantastic in that game. But that's a that's a was, topic for another episode. Sure. <laughs> tune in. But, tune uh, in the, next time when I fight Kevin Chen. <laughs> <laughs> but the beautiful thing about Silent Two, Silent Hill Two, especially its final act, um, is that this is a rare example of a game that really cared about catharsis. That doesn't just give you this sort of experience of like. Um, dread and terror and sadness and all these other feelings that the, the game tries to evoke in you, but that it tries to bring it all together into something that gives the player a sense of closure. And I think that's what a lot of critics really took away from that game. Um, more so even than the iconic, you know, atmosphere and the uh, the creepy monster designs and and the symbolism and the themes and so on. I mean, like all of those are great, but what really brings it together in a complete experience is that that feeling of catharsis at the end. And it it's interesting because the ending itself is a little, like, uh... <laughs> like, this, the boss <laughs> is the same. Yeah. <laughs> and the boss is weird, and, it, like, oh, it's a different character depending on the choices you made, but it plays exactly the same. It's like, yeah, that's a little... Um, that's cheating a little bit. But just the feeling that, at the end, like, that you went through a complete experience, um, that is what really makes it magical. That you close the book, and you're like, huh... That was that was good, and not not like you know oh my god what the fuck which is what <laughs> you get from a lot of games that yeah. just kind of like leave you hanging there. What, what about you, Steve? So for me, if we're for if we're talking about conclusions to narrative based games, I think the thing that I would like to see is the sum of my choices, the sum of my experience in that game, being reflected in the way that game ends. And I don't know, you know, I, I think the idea of multiple endings to a game is sort of a, a small step in what I'm talking about. But I think, I think a big tool towards getting to 
this ideal ending to a video game that I'm fantasizing about right now is going to be the use of something like procedural generation to have some way for Mm. an algorithm to really take into account the nuance of my journey and incorporate that into the ending. And I don't know what it's going to take for us to get there. I don't, I don't, maybe, maybe we're there and just people aren't interested in pursuing it or, or maybe there is, you know, still a, a lot more that has to be done in the realm of AI and, and, that kind of stuff, but um, that's that's what I want to see in the future. I don't know what the the active steps towards achieving that are, but that's that's what I want to see. The end. Uh, have you played Caves of Cud or Caves of Cud, however it's pronounced? No. What's that about? Caves of Caves of Cud is a uh, it's a roguelike. It's a greed light. Um, I've probably played that game more than any other in 2017. I think I've something like 120 hours um so caves of code is unique in that it is it started as a roguelike now it's much more of an open world kind of rpg where all the civilizations all the subquests uh, a lot of the npcs are procedurally generated um there's like a procedurally generated mythology with a timeline that goes far in the past and uh ancient kings and artifacts and whatever from this timeline they show up as like quest items and the the sites of their battles are like um, procedurally generated dungeons and so on. And it's really, really fascinating. Um, in part because it explores that potential and allows like every time to really feel different. It's like you're really in a different world. But it also exposes the limitations of procedural generation now and how um, it is really easy to have like... like I'm, I'm assuming this is what you mean and like forgive me if I like this isn't like what you were actually getting at. But... Uh, just to sort of like bad lib everything and just be like, you know, oh, you know, character name finally found solace by defeating the uh, name of big boss with the name of final weapon uh, with an important choice he made at uh, Quest Branch C. You know, like it, for it to reach a real kind of emotional resonance, you still need a sort of human presence to go on there and sort of like, like twiddle with it. If that makes any sense. No, it, it uh, does. Like, I think that I think that in a modern context that that's probably right. Like as far as we've come with AI design and procedural generation, you would end up with sort of that that mad Libby experience that you're talking about. But I think down the line we will get better about finding ways to incorporate nuance into that storytelling so that, you know, it, I, I see little pieces of, of what I want, like. I've mentioned it on here before, but in the the recent Deus Ex games, at the very start of that game, they're they're calling you quickly. Get to the you know get to the chapa, and you got to go and and head <laughs> off to the hostage negotiation. But you don't have to. You can stick around and, and and mess around in the police station. And eventually, they give you a call on the radio and say, "Hey, all the hostages are dead. You fucked up." <laughs> Whoops. But that's so now they're taking into account sort of the, um, you know your your actions, your choice as the player. Now that's a very scripted moment. That's not procedurally generated or anything, but I would love love a game that does take into account, like, you know, how long did you, you know, were you in this area? How long did you spend doing this? What did you do in, you know, when you talked to this person or that person, you know, what did you, what did you eat before arriving at the end of the game? And not that it, not that it all needs to be significant, you know, not that all of those things need to be held on the same plane and it, it doesn't need to, directly reflect all those things but you know if if i fail to accomplish something along the you know the the course of playing through that game i would like to see that reflected 
you know, in, in some way in the ending and it, and not have it just be, you know, the game saying like, Hey, remember that thing you failed? We're, we're mentioning that now, but, <laughs> but having it, having it come up in a, in a natural way. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe that, that kind of game design won't happen in my lifetime. You know, maybe that's a hundred years down the road, but I think that that, I think that in some ways we'll find, we'll find the technology. We'll find the way to tell that kind of story. It sounds like what you're craving is consequences. And then that goes back to the cost benefit of like every time you create a branch in a game that creates more game to make. But that's sort of the entire point of giving players agency in a game. So hitting that balance, I think as games get more sophisticated and people can del can deliver more elaborate consequences, you're going to see more of that. And I did appreciate that uh, in Deus Ex as well. The, the first mission, I didn't kill anybody. And when I came back, everyone was like, well, if it isn't Mahatma Gandhi. And um, <laughs> all the newscasts were incredibly baffled. They were just sort of like, um, security cameras like reported a break-in, at this, but we found no evidence of a break-in. And a whole bunch of like guards woke up feeling yeah. co incredibly confused about what happened. <laughs> I think with Steve's way, we all end up with Skynet in the end. And like the <laughs> only way to actually end the game is to like end the player. <laughs> that's how it's where, it's where well, we end up with that AI. It's a very grim interpretation, Jared. But we'll. I saw that documentary, Terminator. Two. <laughs> we all know how that is. All right, cool. Well, if if that sort of wraps up our discussion about uh, endings, let's move on to some listener feedback, Jared. If you have any questions or comments about video game endings or any of our previous topics, please send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com. Please do it. Me, me? No, not you. Well, I mean, you can oh. do it if you, you can do it if you want, but I'm hoping the maybe I'll I'm hoping the listeners in. will will take it upon themselves <laughs> to send us some feedback. Uh, they can also connect with us oh. at GB Feature on Twitter, and we're always taking ideas for future episodes. Uh, send those along, and we'll find the perfect guest to talk about them with. All right, Jared, what do we got? Uh, we our last discussion was with uh, uh, Jenny. Uh, Try it. Shoyerle. 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 Jenny Shoyerle. Um, it's an awesome, it's an we awesome about name. empowerment, empowerment in video games. And we had a couple people who tweeted it to us about that episode. Uh, DJ raved or Raved said, uh, great talk. I'm glad that Gaomi showed me the way that's her. That's Jenny's Twitter handle. Uh, Jedi Jeremy on Twitter. Uh, he, he, uh, commented on one of our tweets, uh, about the episode. He says it was funny listening to that guy fumble for a definition of empowerment based on personal feels or define it in terms of games, characters, capability. Yeah, that was, and, <laughs> that was a, that was a good one. I, um, I actually had well, a little conversation. Because, you know, Jenny is also a developer and we're coming at it from different perspectives. So I think they have, uh, from a developer ex ex perspective, they have a very like, defined definition of what empowerment means to them oh yeah for sure and i reached out to jedi jeremy uh to thank them for their feedback on that episode and i i'm assuming they were talking about about me being the one fumbling because i'm always the one fumbling for <laughs> definitions i've that's just I, that's yeah in general. i i hope it has never come across that we're speaking from any point of uh expertise on any of the things that we talk about hopefully it'll hopefully we're, we're pretty open about the fact that uh we we just like video games we like talk about video games and but but i think the point of that discussion or like trying to define it from our perspective was to to kind of narrow down what we're talking about in that episode right yeah like that's why that's why we were kind of trying to discuss like what does empowerment mean in this in this context yeah but you and i are idiots and for a game designer it's very clear 
that like empowerment <laughs> is is just player choice, like giving the player. You know, agency. but I think it was it was good that we did that because we separated empowerment from power fantasy, which we ended up talking about almost hand in hand in a lot of the discussion. We did. I, I think in some ways we were kind of the canary in the coal mine, like. If, if you're like us and you like video games, but you don't know much about game development, listen to these two idiots try to fumble through it while a real game developer explains what it actually is. That's perfect. <laughs> I think I'm just gonna put that in the description of our podcast from go. now on. That's basically what this is. <laughs> I mean, the, I can't tell you how many times in this episode alone, Kevin has, has corrected us on things that we have misconceptions about. <laughs> yeah. So Kevin, from, from the kind of games that you've worked on, um, what are your like? Do you have like any like a favorite tricks that game developers use to uh, maybe incorporate, make a, a player feel powerful in the in the situation in the game that they're playing, whether it be like a choice or a weapon? Um, how, how do you come at that as a developer? Well, uh, so this is going to feel a little left out of left field, but um, do you remember Power Rangers and how the fight scenes used to go in Power Rangers? Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, so often if you look really closely at how they like threw punches or did kicks, like they would look really cool, but they wouldn't come even close to like actually connecting. Like you could tell just watching on camera, even with all the editing. Um, you know, they're they're not like landing actual strikes. But the mooks, the guys in the like gray suits, uh, the mm-hmm. what are they called? The putties, they were yeah. so good at selling it. You know, it's like um, the Green Ranger would like throw this like itsy bitsy little punch, and like the um, the putties like spied like snap backwards, and he did a backflip. <laughs> so this is really big in video games too. Like so much of what people give all these like abstract, almost mystical names to, like game feel, or like you know the the feeling of like, the kickback on the super shotgun in Doom Two, um, or like uh, how good it feels to land a combo in a um, in a fighting game. So much of this really just boils down to what happens after you do the action. So the action itself is maybe not necessarily super impressive, but just when you have those like hit sparks or you have the explosions or the sound effects, the sound effects are really important. You just have that really satisfying like squelch. Um, like I've long told people that I don't really believe in game feel as a as a concept that can be aspired to. I feel like if everyone in the, on the team is doing their job, then that just sort of emerges naturally. Now, of course, the designer still has to design, uh, to explain, like you know, exactly what they want out of it. But everyone is sort of creatively thinking about, like, what happens really when somebody's like head gets bashed in with a baseball bat, for example, like in Fallout Three. If everyone is thinking on on the same page, you know, the the animator, the uh, the sound person, the programmers, or whatever, and and they follow through, and the follow through is really beautiful, then. Um, People will attribute players will attribute to the action itself all of the things that happen immediately after that. And I think that feedback is really what makes like those things immediately satisfying. Right. Awesome, yeah, yeah. That that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of games where I'm playing. I'm like, this feels good, or yeah. the running around sucks. Like there's, but like you know, from from just a player's perspective, I don't. It's sometimes that's hard for me to put my thumb on as, as to describe like why that feels good. Um, but that makes a lot of sense, that feedback that you get from any situation. Yeah, and thank you to uh, Jedi Jeremy and DJ Rave for the feedback, and thank you for listening. If you're tuning in now, we appreciate um, everyone that listens and everyone that takes the time to write us messages. It, it means a lot to me. We got anything else, Jared? 
uh, Sean R on Facebook, he suggested a topic that we will um, we will think about. It, he suggested censorship as a topic, and that one could be uh, super interesting. That we might, uh, I think, it would be an interesting con- conversation with Jenny actually coming from a German game development where I know uh, they have some issues. Well, She's and living Australia too. She, she worked, yeah, she worked in Germany as a game designer and then moved to Australia, which are both known for. Uh, having their own rules around that. So, yeah, and I, I, I um, wonder... Thanks, thanks for that idea, Sean. I like that idea a lot. Yeah, and I think it might also be interesting to potentially have an episode about the ESRB. You know, we don't have, like, strict censorship on video games here in the United States, but we definitely have regulating bodies uh, that are in charge of classifying the content of video games. So that, that might be kind of interesting as well. So, yeah, thank you, Sean, for suggesting that. Uh, is that it, Jared? That's it for your feedback today. Cool. Well, again, if you have your own suggestions for topics or any feedback about any of our episodes, you can always reach us at podcast at gbfeature.com. And that's going to do You guys, it. not me. What? Oh, yeah, not Jared. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest, Kevin Chen. Thank you so much for getting up early in the morning in, uh, in Taiwan and, and joining us to talk about video games, man. This has been a blast. Uh, my pleasure. And um, if anyone wants to uh, try out Four Horsemen or learn more about the game, you, know, you can find us on Steam or... Um, You'll also find us at nuclearfissionsoftware.itch.io. Uh, fission being a, it's a pun. It's F-I-S-H-I-N. I hate having to explain that. <laughs> but okay. Yeah, like, a long time ago, Jared and I, we started a company called Red Llama Productions, and I can't tell you how infuriating it is every time I say why, the name. Why Red Llama? Be- because. Yeah. Well, because just, we were in high school but, and it sounded But also cool. because like every time we say it, we have to explain that llama is spelled with two L's. <laughs> it's like yes. every time. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel I, uh, I feel you on that one. And where can, where can people keep up with with you personally they can follow me uh, at a vertical blank on twitter perfect easy easy enough uh yeah please go if you're listening to this go check out four horsemen give uh kevin a follow and uh show him some support and as a reminder we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything if you like what we do and want to help us out head over to our itunes and give us a review I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast. This is Rad on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm at Jared Bruner on Twitter. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right. Thank you, guys. Restart the podcast now if you would like to explore ending D. <laughs> talk to you guys later. Right on.